Hey everybody, welcome back to Never Too Late, the new podcast with me, your host, Debbie Wright. Today I have a guest with me, none other than Tom Wright. No relation. Kidding. He's my wonderful husband. Okay. Hi, everybody. Well, don't sound so enthusiastic there. Hi, everybody. (laughs) There you go. That's better. So, Mr. Wright, he really is my Mr. Wright, in case anybody was wondering. Mr. Wright, um, what is there anything you've done in your life that you've, you had always wanted to do and then you decided, you know, it's never too late, I can go ahead and do it? I would say probably uh, the flying. I was in my 40s when I decided I was tired of working hard and I wanted to do something fun as a job. So it would be getting paid for a hobby. So I started flying. And how did you get into flying? Opened the door and got in the airplane. Uh, yeah, and there's my smart aleck. <laughs> no, my, a lot of my dad was a pilot. My uncle was a pilot. Kind of ran through the family. And I've always played with airplanes and always liked airplanes. Are you related to the Wright brothers? Uh, way back in the distant past, yes. We somewhere had a uh, certificate of stock in the Wright Airplane Company years ago. Oh, so it is in your blood? Yes. Okay, well that explains why you wanted to get up there. So, um, as I understand it though, I heard a story that your dad was actually, when you were younger, was going to pay for flight lessons for you. And what happened there? Well, yeah, for my graduation gift, uh, he had made a deal with me that he would either help me buy a new car or pay for my private pilot's licenses because at the time United Airlines was hiring what they call street pilots which means if you had your private pilot's license they would hire you and train you to fly one of their airliners. Well being right out of high school the most important thing to me was a bright red Triumph Spitfire. So you chose a, a sporty little car over a career, yeah, basically. Yeah, chick, chick magnet over a job. A chick magnet. <laughs> I see how it is. So when you started flying, what kind of flying did you do? Well, it's, it's hard, difficult, because you really start out, in most cases, as an instructor teaching other people to fly. And people say, well, you're a brand new pilot yourself. How can you teach somebody else to fly? Well, when you, by the time you finish all your pilot training, you are probably at your most proficient. You don't have most experience, but you're at your most proficient because you've just come out of training. So I did about a thousand hours of teaching other people to fly students. I really enjoyed that. And then I moved into uh, uh, flying freight around the country. And pretty much that was pretty much what I did most of my career was flying freight. But how did, how did you learn how to fly? Where, where did you go to Oh, fly? I took lessons at a little school uh, initially uh, at Paul Walkie Airport outside of Chicago. Um, and then I actually went to uh, Emory Aviation in Colorado Springs. They have a uh, it's part 141 school where I got a degree in aviation uh, and all my ratings. Yeah, so if any of you guys listening are not pilots, you're going to notice there's going to be a lot of technical terms here that most of us don't understand, and they'll go whoop right over our heads. But 
that's okay because I know some of Tom's pilot friends are probably going to listen to and and yeah. maybe they're maybe they're judging him and saying, "Oh no, Tom, that's not how it is." Do you think that's what they'll do? Um, they might, but you know, <laughs> of course, a lot of them don't really understand how the uh, duct tape warning light works either. Ooh, duct tape! Oh, a duct tape warning light. Well, tell us about chemtrails. Chemtrails. Oh, absolutely true. I'm wearing my chemtrails T-shirt right now. Actually, he is really. He really is. He's part of the chemtrails. That's right. It's one of those subjects that some people find hilarious and other people get mad about because they really believe you're polluting the atmosphere. And poisoning other people. And poisoning other people. But, you know, the CIA started it back in the early 50s with uh, mass mass crowd control. Okay, now we're going to have conspiracy theorists tuning in. Oh, yeah. To get your take on these chemtrails. Well, you know, Noah was a conspiracy theorist until it started to rain. <laughs> okay, we, we took that conspiracy theory like right almost back to the beginning. That's right. <laughs> you taught students to fly. Um, what else did you do when you were first starting out? What other kind of flying? Did you, you t- told me before you did banner towing. Yeah, I did some banner towing. And, tell, uh, tell us what banner towing is. Well, that's when you go to the beach and you see a small airplane circling around with a big long string of letters or sentences behind it. Uh, we would do banner towing around uh, Lake Ozark, Missouri. And a lot of people get so used to the airplanes flying around above them with banners that they would never even look up. So you're going relatively so slow, 60 or 70 knots. So I'd have the window of the aircraft open and I would take an air horn with me and I would, over the shopping centers, I'd start blowing that air horn 500 feet up 70 miles an hour, and everybody would look up and read the banner. Did you wave at him? Yes. You waved and blew your horn? Yep. Okay, so who was having the controls of the airplane then? Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, they're pretty stable. <laughs> so then um, you had some more exciting jobs when you got on with some different companies, correct? Yeah, I did... Uh, uh, flying out of Denver, flying UPS freight, that was interesting because uh, in Colorado, in the mountains, in Wyoming, and all those areas like that, the weather can be absolutely fantastic or absolutely terrible. And uh, so we would we would go from getting paid for doing what we loved, our hobby, to getting paid to and really earning our money on, when the weather was bad. At California, you got paid to sit on the beach. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, we got tasked to be a shuttle for Raytheon Defense Systems. They had a, uh, a laboratory in, up in Santa Monica. I think it was, no, it wasn't Santa Monica. It was up at Goleta. And uh, so none of the scientists at Raytheon in Los Angeles wanted to make the commute every day up there. None of them wanted to move up there for a week at a time and come home to LA on the weekends. So the guy in charge of the whole project, uh, General Arnold, who had retired and gotten uh, hired by Raytheon Defense Systems, he decided, well, we'll just charter a big old airplane and carry all the scientists up there. Well, by air from Los Angeles to Goleta is 27 minutes. So we'd take off in the morning about 7.30, fly up to Goleta, unload all the scientists off the airplane, and the co-pilot and I and my dog were 
off all day until we had to fly him back at 5.30 in the evening. So we would spend every day, Monday through Friday, at the beach, or we would rent a sailboat and go sailing. Sounds like a tough job. Yeah, it was. It was, it was hard. I mean, it's, you had to fly <laughs> work for a whole hour every day, Monday through Friday. And take your dog to the and beach. And take my dog to the beach, And yeah. try and pick up chicks with your dog. Yep, the dog was good at that. <laughs> Fortunately, you were single at the time. That's right. <laughs> And there was times when you were working in, was it Wyoming, when you got paid to sit at the airport? When you were on standby or something? Yeah, I was based in Denver. And oh, I was, Denver, okay. Yeah, I was, I, we had routes to Wyoming and western Colorado and Kansas. And uh, I had the best job because most of the pilots lived at the outstations. So they were home all day. And they'd fly the freight into Denver to the hub at night, but they'd have to spend the night in a hotel, fly back to their home base every morning and spend. So they were home in the daytimes, but never home at night. I, on the other hand, being a floater, I was based in Denver. And if nobody got sick or nobody was on vacation, I didn't have to take their place. So I would show up for work at 4 a.m. After the launch, everybody was gone. I was off until the next day. So I would go for weeks on end without having to fly, but still getting full pay. And then when I did fly, it was uh, maybe one or two days to Casper, Wyoming, or maybe a day to Garden City, Kansas, or to Vail, Colorado, uh, just to fill in for somebody that might be sick or had something scheduled or, or went on vacation. Okay, but you said didn't have to fly, but really you love to fly. Oh, I absolutely love to fly. Yeah, best job in the world. Yeah. Getting paid to sit and look out the window. Look at the earthlings. Because what did your teacher tell you when you were little? Uh, nobody would pay me to sit and look out the window. So I decided to become a pilot, so they would pay me to sit and look out the window. And you had to prove that teacher wrong. That's right. That's right. And then you worked in Africa. Yes. Probably the friendliest people I have ever met. And where were you in Africa? Uh, a place called Ouagadougou. It used to be French Upper Volta. Uh, back when the uh, the Europeans split Africa up, had taking no uh, paying no attention to the natural boundaries that the countries had established over a thousand years, they just split Africa up the way they thought it should be based on what they wanted and if there were resources or not. Uh, Ouagadougou is probably one of the poorest countries in Africa, but everybody there is so friendly and so thankful for what they do have. Uh, that's uh, one of the places where a smile just goes a long, long way with people. Absolutely incredible country. And where, what other country is Ouagadougou close to? Because I think most people don't know where Ouagadougou is, might never have even heard of it. Uh, well... Or do you know? You were just there. Yeah, Burkina, Burkina <laughs> Faso is the actual country name. Oh, okay. Ouagadougou is the capital. Oh, okay. Uh, so but even Burkina Faso, I think yeah, probably people have never heard of that. Much, yeah, so. yeah, probably the only place people have heard that is uh, uh, a movie called Lord of War with Nicolas Cage. And he mentions one of the helicopters going over there, and that's a true part of the story. We were next to that helicopter. But... Uh, yeah, what was your question? Is, is Burkina Faso then, is it like by Congo? Is it by South Africa? Do you know? Um, it's on the coast next to Guinea. Okay. 
on so the, on the, was there southern, the southern facing coast. Is there beaches nearby there? We don't know. I mean, it was one country underneath us. I can't even tell you what it was. Okay. Uh, it's a landlocked country. They have a lot of natural resources that they could not get to because they don't have the technology, but they are a landlocked country. Okay. And what did you do there? Can you tell us? Is it a secret? Oh, yeah. We used to we used, we'd do flying for uh, uh, an Air Force... Uh, supporting an Air Force mission called AFRICOM, which at the time they were based in Germany, so we were the first uh, point of the spear, so to speak, on AFRICOM. And we were doing some tracking of various items that would make their way across the country towards the Middle East. Various items? Yeah. Just things that yeah. bad people would use. You, you can't tell us what these things are. Yeah, I'm not supposed to. Okay. So you have security clearance? Yes. And that's all you're going to say? That's all I can get. <laughs> okay. Nice people, though. Very friendly. Okay. One of your stories from Africa, you had a houseboy that gave you a snack one day? Yeah, Confi. He, uh, he loved Americans. Uh, he was a university student there in Ouagadougou. Ouagadougou is the capital of Burkina Faso. And is that what they call them as houseboys? Yeah. Okay. Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, he was our, he would take care of our logistics need as far as making sure we were stocked up with food. Uh, we'd have cases of beer, cases of soda pop. Um, he would take care of any kind of uh, uh, public relations we needed with any of the city or local officials. Um, so he wasn't just a houseboy. He, no, he was. He, he, was, he was university. Yeah. He was going to the university. He was very. Okay. He's now in the U.S. As a matter of fact, and married with a child. Hmm. He's not married with. He has. A, he has <laughs> wife had a child. Uh, yeah. So one day he really liked Americans, and this was like the third of July, and he knew the fourth of July was a big American holiday. So he went to the local market and bought us. A kid, which is you know kind of a baby goat, and we brought it back. And our our compound, if you can imagine, a typical size three-story house with swimming pool, all tile floors. That was our compound, and it was walled in with with eight-foot walls to keep people out. And so we just let the goat run around the yard and eat grass. He was such a nice goat. We named it Lunch. And the next day, such a nice goat. You named it lunch. We named you, it lunch. Yeah, you knew. Yeah. So the next day, um, Confi, who is our our liaison guy, he showed us how to butcher the goat, and uh, he cooked it and grilled it. I mean, hair on the on the head and everything, and you know the hair burns off. But, oh, but it um, smells. I just imagine. Well, we all had some. It's not something I, I liked. No, I mean the burning hair probably. Oh, yeah, it, it wasn't bad. I mean, it, the area, we're talking of cities that really don't have sewers or anything. Oh, so you really I couldn't mean, this, smell it over No, this is else. like gotcha. pictures of, of Africa, cities that you see on give us money, you know, support a child. It, it's, it's a very poor country. Okay, but uh, so you said you didn't like it? I didn't like you it. You no. didn't like the goat? No. Well... It probably didn't like you either. No, that's for sure. I mean, it, you know, after even just one night eating our grass, it was pretty friendly. Aww. But uh, the most interesting part is uh, on days where we weren't flying, we'd go to a local, really can't even call it a bar, 
but they would have wine and stuff like that. And they did have a TV, so we were watching the uh, uh, international soccer leagues, which are playing. And uh, Burkina Faso, Wagadu, had a professional soccer team. In fact, one of the head guys on the soccer team lived next door to us. Drove a BMW on all the dirt roads. And, but it was cool. funny because uh, we were drinking wine, and Comfy asked uh, the proprietor if he had anything that we could snack on because it wasn't a restaurant. So he said, yeah, I've got some some stuff, and he brought us some hot, fresh bread and what looked like beef stew. And it was really good. We're chowing down on the bread and screaming at the TV, watching the soccer game and drinking wine. Get pretty much close to the bottom of the bowl of, of stew, and there was a dog's tooth. A dog's tooth. A dog's tooth. We had been eating dog. And so did you like the dog better or the goat better? I like the dog better. <laughs> it tastes, believe it or not, like roast beef if it has gravy. Not like chicken. Not like chicken. <laughs> like but it's funny because in Africa, uh, if it's not a working animal, it is food. There are no pets. If you see a, a stray dog running around, he's wily enough to have escaped getting caught. But he will be caught and he will be on a dinner table at some point. Mm. But it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's different, different customs than what we have. We take animals and use them for pets. And they take animals that are not working animals, and those—it's food. It's how they subside, uh, how they subsist. And is Africa where you had the mohawk? Yes. And how'd yeah. that come about? Oh, uh, we were drinking wine, and said we—we we, the flight crew should do something different than our ground counterparts. So we all shaved each other's heads into mohawks, and we all pretty much had beards. So it's never too late to have a mohawk. That's right. I still would like to have another one. <laughs> and somebody says, no, you are yeah, not having yeah, a mohawk. There's somebody close mean. to me that really does not want that to happen. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and I can understand her thinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was told I looked like Chuck Liddell, the MMA wrestler, because I had the beard and the mohawk. And uh, it was cool. Mm -hmm. Says you. Yeah. Says you and your buddies. That's right. Yeah. So after Africa, you went to Iraq. Yes. And what did you do in Iraq? Uh, basically the same thing, but more intensely and a lot under a lot more security and scrutiny. So your security clearance was higher there? Yes. Okay. And can you tell us what you did? Uh, fly around in circles. Okay. <laughs> can you tell us where you were in Iraq? Uh, yeah, I was in Iraq over Sadr City, Baghdad, uh, and a couple other places I don't even remember the names of now. I can see them on the map, but yeah, we were, we were doing stuff for the military. Was this before or after Hussein was killed? Caught and killed? Um, you don't remember? Oh gosh, that was probably, uh, that was before. I believe. Before they caught him? Yeah. So it was kind of hairy over there then? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it was never safe over there. We would have, uh, you know, when you were doing your bicycling or running or jogging around the, the post, you wouldn't didn't want to use the perimeter road. And you were pretty much advised not to use the perimeter road because uh, the bad guys would sneak in at night and set mines out there. And uh, we had a couple of the guards that uh, were ambushed on the perimeter road close to where we were staying and uh, killed. The bad guys came through the wire at night. Wow. Was, how did they get through the wire? 
Just not enough security? It's just, it's just yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 the big air base like that is probably a couple of square miles. And they don't, in, in Iraq at that time, they weren't building walls. We had HESCO barriers around the barracks and the mess hall and things like that. What are HESCO barriers for people that don't know? This looks like a big giant wire basket full of dirt. Okay, dirt and rocks. Dirt and rock. Yeah, they're about eight, okay. eight or ten, nine feet high and probably six or seven by six or seven feet across and deep. Okay. They build walls out of them. Okay, do you have any interesting stories from Iraq you want to share? Interesting stories from Iraq. Um, we used to always hope that we'd run into some weather and couldn't get back into uh, Bala or uh, Tikrit where we were, Camp Spiker, we would hope we would have to land in Balad because they actually had uh, Burger Kings and things like that that weren't real, but they were foreign franchises, but it was close enough to what you'd have at home that we'd always hope to go in there. It sort of tasted like Burger King? Yeah. If you can imagine uh, stuff. Was it dog? It could be. We never <laughs> knew what it was. It never tasted like it does here. Could have been dog or goat? Yeah, dog or goat. Could be camel. <laughs> All right, then you were back in the States for a while. Yeah. Flying around, working for... Uh... Flying uh, for Microsoft, for their Bing project, which is basically like Google Earth, doing aerial mapping. Okay. And that was a fun job. Uh, that was, I think you'd work 10 days and off five or something like that. It was, it was pretty good. You're always on the move, uh, living in hotels. Uh, meeting a lot of new people. Looking for dates. Looking for dates. I'd have those lined up because we generally knew kind of what our schedule would be and where based on future weather forecast and where Microsoft needed some ground mapping done. It was uh, basically a two-year project they figured to get the whole United States done. Uh, yeah, I, it, was, it was a fun job. Fun airplane. Fun flying. Very, uh, you're very much on your own, you and your sensor operator. I mean, you're not, there's very little oversight on that. You know, you just get your basically marching orders and you'd be on your own for, you know, a week to 10 days mapping out aerial photography areas that need to be done. So that was a really fun job. So yeah, a single pilot flying around looking for dates, but that's another story. We'll save that for another podcast. So let's move on to your next position. You want to tell us where you were? Uh, that would be probably Afghanistan. And you were in Bagram? Yes. Okay. Yeah, which, you know, this week they're pulling out of Bagram and it won't take a year before that place is just a slum. You know, everything we give to those third world people, they just, they don't have the technology to take care of it. But, uh, yeah, Bagram was probably one of the best jobs I've had. Met my best buddies there, great flying all over the country. Uh, and you're still in touch with a lot of those people. Oh yeah, absolutely. There. Absolutely. Yeah. So shout actually, out to all you guys. Yeah, I was actually in Kabul for several months with a different contract uh, before I moved over to Bagram with uh, Blackwater. But it was kind of neat in, in Kabul, which is the capital, because the uh, uh, the Department of uh, State Department and the DEA apparently overseas are huge, huge enemies of each other. 
And we had to land one time, we're flying for the, the DEA, landed in Kandahar. And because it was a special mission, we didn't have uh, uh, PPLs, prior permission to land certificates all filled out. So they wouldn't let us land and stay on the airport in Kandahar. We had to taxi over to the Afghani part of the airport, which means we were no longer on coalition territory. We were in Afghanistan, which that just created a whole bunch of problems. Uh, when it was time to leave, because we weren't flying into Kandahar, we didn't have a flight plan, we couldn't, the airport would not let us taxi from one part of the airport to another because we weren't, didn't have a flight plan come in because we were already on the ground. So the only way, and then it turns out the Afghanis wouldn't, wouldn't so I went and saw the base commander, got him to get us permission slip basically. Then the Afghanis wouldn't let us leave their ramp without giving them some, uh, bootleg basically uh they're so corrupt so we traded them a couple hundred rounds of armor piercing ammunition uh just so we could get off out of their side of the base where did you get the armor piercing ammunition was it with was it oh uh, it's plane? just it's yeah we had well yeah we had armor yeah uh, <laughs> okay uh so because we had you know gave them about 600 rounds uh the afghani soldiers and you never knew if they were good guys or bad guys, uh, let us start the airplane, get off of their ramp, and taxi back onto Kandahar Air Base, which it took a whole day of begging the base commander to let us get on to explain the situation. And then uh, we're taxiing out and had an engine problem. We had no place to go because since we didn't have a prior permission to land, there was no ramp parking for us. So I figured, well, we'll taxi down to the State Department's ramp, because they're Americans, so they'll let us on. They wouldn't let us on because we weren't with the State Department. Uh, we were with the DEA. And so we ended up taxiing around the airport for about an hour <laughs> while we could figure out the problem we had with the airplane. We finally got it solved and, and took off and headed back. That was, that was crazy. Did you have a lot of problems with airplanes? Um, not really. Not really. Our motto was, uh, you call, we haul, anytime, anywhere. And what kind of stuff did you haul? Uh, anything that needed to be hauled. Uh, could be letters, could be new recruits, could be prisoners. Uh, sometimes it was just air. They wanted an airplane placed somewhere for some reason. And they wouldn't tell us the reason. They would just say, you've got to have an airplane at this spot at this time. And sometimes you had people on your plane with bags over their head. Yes. So you had anything from prisoners to generals to Miami Dolphins cheerleaders? Yep. Uh, wounded warriors. Chuck Yeager. On tour. Gen General Yeager. You were yeah. You got to fly around Chuck Yeager, which I find interesting that when you tell people that you were the pilot for Chuck Yeager, they say who? A lot of these younger people don't, they don't know they who don't know. Chuck yeah. Yeager is. So that's they don't know. Kind of interesting, also. History. That's right. Nobody teaches history anymore. Um, what about your airplane? There, did you ever get into hair? Did you ever get into any hairy situations? Um. Yeah, a few times. I mean, we'd have some typical problems. You know, some of the aircraft would get, you know, what would appear to be bullet holes 
Appear to be. Appear to be. But not necessarily. Not huh? necessarily. Just, just a good guess? Yeah, that had to be a good guess. <laughs> uh, you know, we'd have some typical uh, uh, maintenance problems where you'd be flying and you might lose an engine for some reason or not. Uh, but generally, it was good flying. Everybody wanted to be there. And that's, that's the awesome part of a contract job is there is nobody there that doesn't want to be there. Um, so all your buddies are dedicated. Everybody wants to get the job done. Um, it's not like school in most of the jobs where somebody comes to us, oh God, I hate this job. I wish, you know, I didn't have to do this or whatever. Everybody wanted to be there. And part of the reason you liked it is because it was your way to be able to support the troops. Right, right. right. Okay. Yeah, I was in the army years ago. I was a tank commander. Um, we never saw any combat back then. In fact, we were, got to be friendly with a lot of the so-called bad guys. We'd do tours uh, with the East Germans and some of the Russians. We'd swap uniforms and things like that. But uh, so when Desert Storm first happened, I felt guilty that I was not there as a tanker. Uh, so I said, well, hey, I'm switching from uh, flying freight around the U.S. and I'm going to go there to the Middle East and help. That's, that's really that's so, nice. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, I got my uh, combat area experience in, loved it. And we get mortared at night occasionally. It got to the point that the uh, klaxons would be sounding and the loudspeaker would say, incoming, incoming, take cover, things like that. And you basically just blink your eyes, pull the covers back over your head and go back to sleep because if the rocket was going to hit you, it was going to hit you. There was no place that was completely rocket proof. Um, so at a certain time, you, I'm not going to say you come, become complacent, but you just accept the fact that it's your time or it's not. So I'm, I'm going to stop you right there because our half an hour is up for today. So I'm going to stop you right there and we will continue part two of this podcast next week. Okay. So, so just remember, uh, as Tom has taught us today, it is never too late to start your second career, which for him was something that he ended up loving to do, and that was flying. So. Absolutely. It's never too late to do what you want. And if you don't do it, my dad used to say, don't end up in a rocking chair on the front porch wishing you had done something. Do what you want. If it doesn't work out, do something else. All right. Thanks, babe. Mm -hmm. See you next week, guys. All right. <laughs>